everybody. Welcome back to the Sober Life Podcast. Um, today we have a very, very special guest, um, Mr. John Wyman. He is a certified professional life coach, uh, author, all kinds of things, but most importantly, he is a survivor. So, John, thank you so much for joining us. Sure, sure. I, uh, yeah, I like to call myself a liver transplant thriver. A thriver. I apologize. <laughs> he is thriving. I love it. Life is so, good. So, John, you're you're in Baltimore these days, correct? Yes. Is that home for you? Uh, I noticed you got your Yankees pride going on there. <laughs> yes, I. Uh, well, I grew up in New York. We moved to Connecticut, and then I moved down here to to Baltimore. Um, so, I uh, New York's home. New York's yeah. Definitely. Oh, don't hold that against me. <laughs> well, you know, being an Astros fan, it's a little tough, but um, you, you know how that goes. Uh, my brother was a neighbor of yours, I get then. Yeah, was he down this way? Yeah, he was there for years, yeah. Awesome, awesome. So, John, if you don't mind, uh, and, and I guess we'll just kind of start at the beginning. Uh, you grew up up in the New York, Connecticut area? Yeah, yeah. Primary school, all that good stuff? Uh, I'm sorry, primary school? Elementary school, middle oh, school. Siwanoi. Yeah, yeah. Um, And actually, Siwanoi had a, um, I wrote a short story about Siwanoi, but um, indirectly, it was probably the start of my drinking, sixth grade. Um, I walked to school every day when you could walk to school before buses. Um, it was uh, Mark Laviel, Mike Morrissey. We'd watch school together every day. And in the springtime, uh, near the end of school, a couple weeks to go, uh, they came up to me and said, we can't be friends with you anymore because we like girls now and you're not cool enough to. And they walked away from me. Ouch. And I was alone. And I, I was stunned by it. Um, fast forward to the first week of junior high school, uh, Friday night, there was a bonfire. I was a shy kid. Well, uh, I'm sure we all know what liquid courage is. I went into my parents' liquor cabinet and poured a little bit of everything into a bottle, um, with a little soda. It was probably the worst <laughs> tasting thing ever. Um, I didn't care, but I got that liquid courage so I could talk to the girls. Um, and, uh, you know, I, um, I did and made a fool of myself, but uh, I learned the benefits of alcohol there allowed me to talk um, to people um, and connect with people, or so I thought. Um, fast forward to high school. Um, very pivotal, pivotal time. I, I went to a, a prestigious private school um, and, uh, you know, the place called the Hill School. And what I took away from that education was 28 grams in an ounce. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I learned from the Hill School where, by the way, uh, um, well, I won't be political, but Trump Jr. went to the Hill School. Um, wow. Well, he his he burned his father burned me for seventy thousand, but that's another story. <laughs> but um, at the Hill School, we used weed and alcohol to connect um, because boarding school were strangers put into this. You know, wasn't friends all our life. We were just put there, and um, to back up, and it's part of the reason I'm alive today. I'd say. Uh, my older brother um, went to the Hill School, and when we went to a visit, we went to the Hill School Lawrenceville football game. Uh, they were the big rivals. And on the last play of the game, the person from my school dropped the winning touchdown. And being the fifth child, when we walked off you know, out of the stands, I didn't matter as a fifth child. I walked over to the guy in the end zone. He was crying. And I remember thinking I was maybe eight years old. 
thinking that will never be me. I will win this game. I wasn't even playing football, but I didn't want that pain. And that word pain is a very important part of this. So fast forward, um, 15 years old, and uh, we're smoking out of a bong, and I hand the bong to my roommate, and I say, that's it. I'm not getting high or drinking again until I beat Lawrenceville next year. I was a quarterback and a kicker. My roommate says, you're, you're full of it. You'll be getting high tomorrow. I'm like, no, I won't. And I didn't. Fast forward, I remember it was 12.40 for a one o'clock kickoff. My father shows up in the locker room. I'm like, Dad, what are you doing? Where's Mom? And he said, well, that's why I'm here. I want you to know your mother and I are getting divorced. Mm. And I'm like, you're telling me this now? Are you serious? And by the way, the divorce happened because my father basically left my mother homeless on the streets of New York City to marry his secretary. So um, game comes. And as I said, I was a quarterback and a kicker. And I ended up kicking the winning field goal to beat Lawrenceville. Um, and one of the emptiest feelings that I've ever had in my life was looking in the stands for my mother and not seeing her. You're damn right I got hammered that night. I got drunk that night and, you know, went back to that behavior. Uh, you know, through my parents' divorce, I connected through alcohol and, um, and lies. I, uh, you know, literally none of my friends, bar friends, who bar friends aren't friends, um, knew what I was going through. And to fast forward and make it scary, this for five years, I kept that secret about shame about my parents. Fast forward to my marriage, my divorce. For five years, no one knew. I repeated the pattern. And again, I, um, I connected with people through alcohol. I, um, I was alone. I was alone in, as I look back, so many areas of my life. Um, and the way I connected was through drinking. It was, um, I was not the person who ever needed a drink. I, um, I needed connection. I will tell you in high school, um, with my parents' divorce, uh, I was a Bruce Springsteen fan. And my senior quote that our whole family would talk about our senior quotes, I was the youngest, was... Baby, this town rips the bones from your back. It's a death trap. It's a suicide rap. It was a scream for help. No one heard it. So I went to the bar. You know, the drinking age was 18. I was going since I was 15. And, um, you know, again, that there I connected. So, um, you know, literally my high school graduation, no one went to. No, my college graduation, I didn't even go. <laughs> so, um, but you know where I was? During I can the, guess. I can yeah. guess. <laughs> you got it. That's where I was. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I learned to really connect through alcohol, but it wasn't true connection. It wasn't. It was, it was a lie. Um, so... Uh, but fire away. That, that's the background of my story. <laughs> well, you know, and you talk about bar friends, and so many people don't understand that concept. I mean, yeah, they're your buddies. You can you can shoot the breeze with them. You can borrow tools from them. You can do a lot of things. But the moment you tell them you're going to quit drinking, it's, oh, my gosh, what? You could have told them that you, you murdered somebody and buried the body last night, and they they're cool with that. But you're getting yeah. sober. <laughs> it's yeah, yeah. it's a crazy thing. 
Um, but you know, it sounds like you, you adored your mother. Uh, did you and dad ever, ever have any kind of relationship after the, the divorce? Um, I actually lived with my father. Okay. Um, my father refused to leave the house and, and more, I felt so alone in the house because my father, his secretary who became his wife, her sister and husband lived in the house and I was in the basement. Um, gotcha. we, we were not connected. Um, no, we weren't connected. And my parents' divorce was five years. And uh, it, it was ugly. It was very, very ugly. Um, and again, it was like, you know, I loved them to death. Well, loved my mom really to death. But I can't remember as I'm thinking about it right now, them ever asking me for a report card. Yeah, that's tough. I mean, I know my father never asked, how am I doing? Um, and... Uh, in college. I know that he never asked that question once. Um, my conversations with my mother, um, as I started to get into the field of, you know, psychology, um, I worked in a, uh, adolescent psych hospital. Um, and I worked with one of the best in the world, uh, a guy by the name of Dr. James Masterson. And when my mom wouldn't vent about my father, one of the things my mother would say to me, because she was so hurt, if you love me, you go home and tell your father what a piece of shit he is. And I'd be like, okay, mom, I'll do it. And I did. I'd go back. What'd he say? He didn't care. He didn't say anything. Well, then go do it again. It was useless. And... But when we would talk about this field of psychology, um, she said to me something, and I, I literally just realized it in the past few years. She said, you know, John, you have a gift. You see people. And I didn't understand what she meant, but in my sessions when I work with couples, I can literally describe, like, what they're saying. like. And they're like, how do you know that? <laughs> well, you told me. You, um, but it's, uh, you know, and in the consequences in drinking, um, my mom drank too much uh, because of her pain. Um, you know, the, uh, a lot of, like, when I was in this field and loved it, um, uh, I remember wanting to get my PhD and getting married at 22, um, you know, and basically the reason was, is don't be like your dad. I gave up everything. Don't be like your dad. Don't be like your dad. Um, so um, as I, I started to feel the pain, um, I drank. Again, the drinking, drinking was a way to hide the pain. It was, um, yeah, I didn't feel pain when I drank. Yeah, it's sometimes that, that release that we're after, just, just getting away from the world. And, uh, you know, it's such a, such a horrible way to deal with that pain, but it's easy and it's available. Oh, uh, well, and I'll, maybe I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but uh, one of the things this guy, Dr. Masterson, told me, uh, was, um, he said, John, you got to realize in treatment six months before they stop lying. And it's not, they went to one grocery store when they went to another, it's the stuff we don't want to admit. When I share my story, like I was given two months to live full liver failure and I just stopped drinking. And people would ask me, how'd you do that? You didn't go to AA? No, I didn't want to die. I didn't want to die. That's all. I didn't want to die. It's a lot that of motivations. Sounds... Well, it's a lie. <laughs> <laughs> the reason I didn't want to die was because I thought dying would hurt. The pain of it 
I've been escaping pain all my life. And there it was again. And I'm literally one day thinking about this, going, yeah, it was a pain. It wasn't dying that scared me. It was a pain. That's uh I've never heard it put quite that way. There's a lot of reasons people don't want to die. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it was pain. But but talking about your your liver, um, you know, and, and you mentioned that you were given two months to live. How did all that come about? What what brought you to that point where either you sought treatment, were you getting a checkup, or did you start feeling bad? Um, well, I, I'm embarrassed, but I'm going to be honest. I uh, My father was a doctor. I had my first physical when I went to the emergency room for stomach pain. And after four hours of testing, they told me I was in complete liver failure. And if I kept doing what I was doing, I'd be dead in two months. So, um, but one of the things, you know, what do you do when that happens? And um, I'll never forget, my mom was, was an incredible inspiration to me. Her, she had lymphoma and she had a, a three-year battle. Um, and uh, I remember walking out of the hospital with no insurance and thinking, wow, two months, what do I do? And I thought, well, if I can be half as strong as my mom, I'll be fine. I can do that. And uh, I, I, I did that and I thought a lot about my mom at the time. And, one of the um, big influences was her last words before she died were positive thoughts. And here I am given two months to live and I'm like, positive thoughts, mom, huh? Positive thoughts, really? And I slowly bought into it. Um, and, uh, you know, through that time, it took a year to buy into positive thoughts. And it's crazy to say I got healthier. I felt better. I didn't medically get healthier. I felt better. Um, and I thought, well, I'll just keep being positive. Um, you know, so, um, you know, cirrhosis is... Uh, I, you know, Eli, I'm so happy to talk to you because no one really understands the medical aspect of this. Not many. No, and many. It, yeah, I tell you, I don't understand it either. I don't, I don't have a medical background. I, I'm not familiar. Would you share with us, with us what cirrhosis is and how does it, how does it attack the body? Cirrhosis, everyone says. Well, the liver regenerates. The liver regenerates. Yes, that's true. It does. Until, due to alcohol abuse, the liver becomes scarred. Scars don't heal. And that's it. And for your listeners, I'll tell you, I can tell you everyone is dying to know and ask that question, well, John, how much did you drink? Eli, you're not gonna like my answer. My answer is, however much I drank, my body said it was too much. There's no indication of when your scar tissue is going to happen. None. There's no way that you can really tell when your liver says that's it, that's it. And it's not going to regenerate. That's just not going to happen. And, you know, what it does, how it attacks the body is one, um, well, your nights and days get mixed up. Uh, you can't sleep at night, for starters. Um, Albumin is the main protein in the body that's made by the liver. Your albumin is depleted and you lose all your strength. I mean, I 
I could barely walk to the car after I was diagnosed. It was, I was tired. I was so tired. Um, it, uh, the brain, um, you know, if the toxins go to the brain, well, you know, there's something called hepatic encephalopathy where you hallucinate. Mm -hmm. um, it, and it's, and I had it once driving. And the fact that I'm alive today is a miracle. Because oh my. DUI is nothing compared to hepatic encephalopathy. It, I mean, uh, obviously, it's just you don't know. You don't know. You hallucinate. You literally hallucinate. So um, neuropathy uh, is, is bad, um, which is post-transplant never going to get better. Um, so... Uh, what else it do to the body? Um, well, I, uh, it caused me to have two strokes. One, I was on life support for five days. Uh, seizures, um, which that'll be for life. I still have to take my seizure medicine every day. Um, so it, uh, the consequences of the fluid, um, you know, uh, something um, I call the CITES. Uh, and the CITES is fluid. You look pregnant. And that fluid has to be drained from your body. And initially, I was getting 20 liters drained every week. Uh, and 20 liters, that's five gallons? 50 pounds. I, rem I remember it was pounds. Uh, oh. Yeah, probably five gallons. Yeah, yeah. It was a lot, and um, and then it would go twenty liters instead of every week. It would go every two weeks, uh, every month, and um, you. I had to have a procedure called TIPS, which was transjugular intrahepatic portosystemic stent. It's a stent that takes the portal vein to the hepatic vein and allows the blood to flow through. Um. So it's, it prevents the fluid buildup. Problem is the blood isn't detoxified. Haven't been so, through the filter. Yes, exactly. So you have to uh, take a medicine called lacculose, which is a very powerful um, diuretic. Uh, and you, you're going three times a day. Oh, by the way, when you have cirrhosis, your body shuts down. You're not able to go. I am proud to say too much information. Yeah, we like TMI. <laughs> I sat on the toilet for 13 hours and I couldn't go. Oh, goodness, John. Yeah, it was, um, you know, it. I mean, literally walking to the car was a struggle. Um, but I always, um, I'm proud to say I, after you get tapped, that's what it's called when they remove the fluid, what's removed is the fluid and all the protein in the body. So it's, you're tired. <laughs> like It's, um, real, you're really tired. Now, another part of the reality of this is here you are diagnosed with cirrhosis. A hospital wouldn't talk to me for two years. Two years. And why is because that? They don't know if you're serious. Um, you know, there I, I met so many people along the way. I mean, one of my bar drinking friends, I remember running into him and he was drinking. I'm like, Bill, what are you doing? And he said, John, I can't be like you. I'm, I'm cashing out. I'm going down drinking. Um, so, I mean, I had to go for two years. My doctor would call me and say, John, go pee in a bottle now. And I would have to go to the lab. And if one test came up bad, we're starting all over again. So it took two years, hundreds of positive or negative tests. 
to prove that I was serious. And then you get evaluated. Um, I went to Penn in Philadelphia and I'm very biased, but I think they're the best. And Dr. Shaked, I'm in front of 12 doctors, asked me one question. John, you messed up your liver. Why should we give you one? And I, uh, it was pretty cool. I guaranteed him I was going to make it to that table. Guaranteed him. I kid, there's no doubt in my mind. Little did I know that I had two strokes and seizures in front of me. Uh. <laughs> I didn't know that, but I guaranteed him I was making it to that table. Um, and I, uh, it was such a tribute to him. I saw him maybe four times in 12 years. Um, and I'm on my stretcher. Uh, and Dr. you know, outside the operating room, they're getting ready. And he comes walking by and he says, so, John, you ready? And I said, yeah, Dr. Shaked, do you remember what I said? And he goes, yeah, John, I remember. It's my turn now. I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> I couldn't believe it that, you know, I was like, this is going to be easy. And by the way, that surgery was a total of 24 hours. Ooh. 18 hours, there was some bleeding. They went back uh, in six hours. They went back in for another six hours. And, oh, they found cancer. Yeah. John. <laughs> I mean, wow. Now, did the uh, was the cancer able to, to come out with the liver? Oh, there's comforting words for you, Eli. We think we got it all. We're not sure, though. So you have to get tested every three months for five years. Um, I don't know. You see this little thing right here? Huh? I hope it's not related, but it's cancer. Now, liver cancer, skin cancer, somehow they're related, but somehow, but I'm more prone to it. So, so far, so good. My tests have been good, but every three months, I, I got to get tested. And a month before... I'm thinking, is this the time? You know, it's now we're at three and a half years. And every year that goes by, it lessens the chances. But uh, it's five years of, yeah, struggle. John, that is, uh, wow. That's, that's a lot. It really is a lot. I mean, you are, you are a living, breathing, walking miracle. Um, thank you. At the end of the day, why do you why do you think that is? Why why are you still here? Um, you know, that's a great question. I, you know, I, I, honestly, I I think I'm here. Um, you know, I reached out to you, um, because uh, I love your podcast and I thank you. I don't, you know. I've always wanted to get people to stop this and stop drinking and be honest about why you are. And, and there's so much help out there. And again, people don't realize the medical consequences of cirrhosis. They don't, they don't get it. And it's, again, I always say no one wants to go through what I did. But with that being said, getting cirrhosis and being given two months to live is probably one of the best things that ever happened to me in my life because it allows me today to really value life. I, uh, I drink my morning coffee outside on the water and I sound crazy, but the other day, I stared at a butterfly for five minutes. It's like, oh my God, that is so cool. Look at that. It was, it was, um, it was really just, I mean, I have such an appreciation of life today. And 
I love to connect with people in, in their pain. Um, you know, we, we don't have to be alone. We don't have to be. There's, there's help and, you know, it, it's, I'll tell you, one of the interesting things that happened in the transplant waiting room one day, I had another transplant patient ask me what I wanted to be remembered for. And I gave this answer, like, sounded good. I, I said I wanted to be remembered for loving and accepting everyone for exactly who they are. Maybe making them laugh a little bit. I was like, yeah, that's it. She'll like that answer. And then she said to me, are you living that way? And I was like, wow, I don't know. And she said, why don't you try? And as a, an appreciation of that woman who changed my life, you know, went to the grocery store today and uh, this lady um, walked in, looked sad. And I've never seen her in my life. Uh, and I went, hey, I went out to her, hey, what's going on? You look sad. Talk to me. And she was like, oh, well, I'm just the holidays or get me down. And I'm like, and we connected for a little bit. And it was so cool to, um, it's so cool to, you know, connect with people. Um, on some, you know, I, my drinking was to connect with people for connecting with people. And I don't really, I look back and it wasn't really connection. It was everyone was just in pain in the bar. And we were all hiding it. We were all hiding our pain. And um, sometimes when I, you know, my wife and I go to a restaurant and I look at the bar and I see myself in that, there's that guy. And all I see is pain. That's all I see. So it's, you know, again, but I'm, I'm lucky. Why am I here? Um, I'll tell you another reason. My mom was, uh, I used to say five for nine in pregnancies, which is such a stupid way to put it. You know, I didn't realize that four miscarriages and I was the ninth pregnancy. I was her last pregnancy. So I'm here to, you know, make that worth it, all the pain she endured. Um, I'm here to, to make it worth it. And, you know, I'll tell you, Eli, my mom's here right now. Uh, you know, she, she's always with me, you know, obviously back there in the poster, <laughs> but um, she's been a major influence um, in terms of kindness and, uh, you know, yeah, I'm here to pay tribute to her. That's why I'm here. Well, I'll tell you, John, when I uh, when I speak to young people, young addicts, um, one of the things that I try to instill in them, and I, I really, really get this from something that I'm working on, but I, I like to share it with them. It's be kind. Have a smile on your face. Talk to a stranger. You just never know. And it comes back. Because when you walk away from that stranger, you kind of feel something when you've truly made that connection. And it, it took me a long time to learn that. And I'm still struggling with it. I, I work on it every day, but I try to smile more. And, and just random acts of kindness. Doesn't have to be monetary kindness. It's it's a smile. It's a high. I love like I have no life, so I go to the grocery store a lot, but <laughs> I love when a person is, you know, takes their card out to their car and they got to wheel it all the way back. I go get it. I'm like, no, I got it. You, you get in your car. I love doing that. Just yeah. little acts of kindness that, um, you know, and I love going up to a new mother and they have a baby and, you know, making a fuss over the kid. And uh, it's just, um, you know, it, it's so random act of kindness is huge. Well, and you're a, you're a psychology guy. So you, you know how that works. I mean, a young mother with a, with a new baby, she's longing for that, for somebody to be excited over that child and yeah, the things yeah. that it does to her mind. It's just, it, it's amazing. It's absolutely yeah. amazing. 
Yeah, it's um, but I, you know, you I ask away, man. Ask anything. Well, you know, you've kind of covered a lot, and uh, I, I didn't realize that your transplant was what three and a half years ago. Yeah, yeah. So, how are you doing now physically? Are you? Do you have that strength back? Are you? Are you out and about? I walk uh, at least five miles a day. Uh, You're out and about. <laughs> yeah, I do. Uh, I'm 62 years old. I do 62 straight uh, push-ups every day. Um, so I, yeah, I I work seven days a week. Uh, I began working at 7:30 this morning. I'll be working till 10:30 tonight. That's awesome. Uh, now I, I I find time uh, live on the water. It, go on the boat. Um, I promise you down in Houston, if um, you ever think the world is coming to an end, it's not. It's me on the boat singing. <laughs> you think we're being attacked. It's uh, just, it's John again. He's out on the boat. It's me singing. So not very well. <laughs> do you, uh, do you get out in the bay up there often? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, now is a tough time of year because it's cold. Well, sure. um, yeah, but uh, yeah, we we're out every weekend. Every weekend, we we were lucky to have a boat and we go uh, go anywhere on the bay. Um, I nice. love I, water is the water is peace. It's peace. it really is. It really is. Um, what about side effects? Are you having any weird side effects from the transplant? I I've heard that uh, some of the Anti-rejection drugs will cause you to lose taste or smell. Um, I am very lucky. I um, I had literally no side effects. Um, I'm on tacrolimus is the anti-rejection drug, um, and I'm on three milligrams total. Uh, they'll probably be dropped to two. Um, I have been very lucky or maybe i'm too stupid to recognize side effects but um, i you know yeah uh you know it's um yeah no no food things nothing nothing like that uh, i i Oof. really very lucky John, very you, you are I, i've already said it you're a miracle it's 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 absolutely amazing i don't think i've ever talked to another transplant patient that's that's been, nah, I don't have a thing. I'm good. I don't yeah. think I've ever heard that. <laughs> uh, well, to cre credit to Penn, this will shock you. I didn't even need pain meds. Seriously? Yeah, I did not need pain medicine. when They just put ice on me, and I was fine with that. Um, you know, uh, I, I, I will tell you a funny story about getting used to the anti-rejection drugs. Um, you know, day two after my transplant, um, I'm crying like a baby. And, you know, I'm just crying. And I'm thinking, well, it's like maybe I'm happy, whatever, about this. I don't know, but I'm crying like a baby. And the next day... The nurse's aide comes in and says, um, hey, John, it's time for you to get up and sit in the chair now. You know, we need to get you up and moving. And I said to him, you take a step in this room, I'll punch you in your face. And he's like, whoa. <laughs> and Marco, the transplant team psychiatrist, comes in <laughs> and he says, uh, hey, John, first, I know who you are. I know what you do for a living and I know how good you are doing. I'm like, wow, Marco, thank you. That's, that's nice. And he's assessing me and I know he's assessing me and I know why, because one day I'm crying the next day I'm threatened violence. And after about 10 minutes of assessing me, he says, all right, John, I'm not going to bullshit you. Here's what's happening. We are trying to get the anti-rejection drugs, the mixture right and we're struggling, but what's happening is whatever change we make, because we're making changes every day, sometimes twice a day, you are reacting immediately to what we're doing. 
I don't know how you're doing it, but you're reacting right away. And uh, it's happening so fast, we can't keep up with you in terms of, you know, communicating it to the staff. It's helpful that you're what you're doing, but it's happening so fast. The staff thinks you're nuts. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, we're almost there. We almost got it right. So just be a little patient. I'm like, I'm fine. Tell your staff. They've got to be patient. And so, uh, you know, he started asking me about my practice and we had this great conversation, but, you know, it was the getting used to the medications takes a little time. Um, but I, I was, I think, discharged seven days after my transplant. I mean, it was. Uh, you just get right after it, don't you? Yeah, well, it, it wasn't, you know, let's go back to the beginning. The reason I stopped drinking, it was so easy is because I didn't want to feel pain. Penn did such a good job. I didn't feel pain. <laughs> I didn't feel it. They they did a phenomenal job. Um, it was you know it was really it was such a great experience. Um, all, and it was uh, during the Philly riots and COVID. Oh, My wife right. couldn't be there. Yeah, she couldn't be there. I I was alone. Ironically, I was alone, but it was it was good alone this time. Yeah. Uh, John, that's that's just an amazing story, and I, I really appreciate you sharing it with us. Um, one other thing that that I did want to get into before we go, sure. Um, your practice, it's LifeBridge Coaching. Yes, yes. What I, you know, I'm a marriage counselor. Um, I've created a model that. I receive and I'm recognized nationally. I don't believe in the our model of, oh, Eli, you're saying something important right now? Really? I need your credit card. Get out. <laughs> I don't believe that in that. I can do it. And I, I do do it on occasion when they want that. But what I do is I charge per session, not per hour. And what that means is whether it be Zoom because I, I work all over the world or in person, um, I want to end better than begin. And I really don't care how long it goes. Typically, it goes about three hours and it flies by, flies. And in addition to the session, between sessions, both people can call anytime they want. I met with someone last night. The husband called me on the way to work this morning. If we talk for an hour, it's included. And the reason is, is that this is your life. And I, I just can't sit there and say, oh, time's up, got to go. Um, you know, it's it's really, and you basically what happens is you get further faster. Um, so most couples I see, um, they're, they've talked to lawyers. Um, we're about to. Uh, I'm Gottman trained, John and Julie Gottman. Um, there's a science to what makes marriage work. Um, and mysteriously, uh, if you follow the science, it works. And I'll be authentic and tell you all the science. Nah, I think it's nonsense until I do it myself <laughs> and literally. of the time when I make the decision to do, for example, there's four behaviors that predict divorce at a rate of 94%. Criticism, defensiveness, contempt, stonewalling, which 85% of men shut down. We stop. Woman escalates because she wants resolution. If those four behaviors are fixed, um, mysteriously, marriage is a lot better. I give you an example. I'm a critical person. My wife and I ended up in therapy because she's late all the time. And one day she's late and I'm pissed. You know, she's going to come walk in the door. You're late again. You never do what you say you're going to do. You always have excuses. And I'm pacing back and forth. And I say, uh, you know, John, you're a hypocrite. You tell people in your sessions 
to say the criticism in a way your partner can hear it and you don't do it. So I'm like, I'm gonna try this. And she comes walking through the door and she said, I say to her, you know, honey, when you come home on time, I don't worry that you got hurt at your job, you know, at a job. I, I really worry about that. I, I don't worry that you got into a car accident on the way home because, you know, with my health, she found me when I had my major stroke five hours. Um, I'm like, with my health, I don't know how I'd live without you. So I really worry if, if you're late. And she gave the perfect response. I said it in a way she could hear it. She said, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize you worried like that. How about I text you when I'm on my way home? You know, I'll be home in 25 minutes. I'm like, that'd be cool. That's great. Eli, that fight was every day 10 years ago. I can show you the text from yesterday that says, on my way home. We don't have that fight anymore. So if you follow the science of it, it works. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, I love what I do. Um, it sounds like it. And, and I tell you, it shows. It shows that you do. Um, are you specifically uh, couples counseling or do you, do you get into any other uh, fields there? Um, I've seen plenty of people with alcohol abuse, um, drug abuse. Uh, I see the individual aspect of this comes in typically during the phone calls because they can call anytime. And, and some of them I speak to regularly for like, like I said, an hour. Um, and then the issue will eventually come up in the sessions, but, um, people like that. Uh, but individually I, i'll never forget i had a guy uh i had so much respect for him he was a narcissist um and dr masterson was one of the original theorists of narcissistic personality disorder and his wife threw him out of the house and got a restraining order on him for a year and i met with him for a while and his wife individually and his wife, after about three or four months, calls me, says, John, what did you do to my husband? I'm like, Leslie, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> she goes, he's a completely different person. So some individual work, if they're willing to do the work, it's, it's, I love it. You know, and again, what I find is that one determinant is that you know what my mentor said six months before they stop lying how are they able to embrace that and really look at the lies they're telling themselves it's tough um it's really tough to admit and like i said i i i face my own lies all the time uh, the, the pain one was something i recently admitted <laughs> so uh it's it's good stuff though when we realize it when we heal well john it sounds like you've uh you've met your calling you know that being kind and helping people uh doing that service work well it's your job but still service work well i'll tell you what it is um my i always saw myself as a loser of the family and my princeton brother and sister the stars um on separate occasions a year apart said said to me you know john if mom were alive today she'd be prouder of you than any of us and uh that's there you go that's that reason i'm i'm alive today Wow, that's that's strong. That is strong. Yeah. yeah, it's. I just want you know. I've always wanted my mom to be proud of me, and she always was. Always was, um, but uh, very special to me. Well, I guarantee she's with you and and is extremely proud of you. No doubt. Thank, thank you, thank you.
Uh, John, if we want to get a hold of you about uh, about life coaching, is it uh, lifebridgecoaching.com? LifeBridge, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah, lifebridgecoaching.com. Um, you know, and I, uh, again, I mainly do relationships, marriage, um, you know, but, uh, life. <laughs> so, uh, it's in this model I've created, people love, um, they absolutely love it. So it sounds like it sounds like it's extremely effective as well. Well, can I vent to you? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> when I, when I go to like hire people that are like, John, how do you do that? Because I've had sessions go five hours. <laughs> and they're like, this is their life. <laughs> the hardest part is hiring people because they can't do it. They, they, I don't know, understand how they can, but um, it's, again, it's their life. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's not a job. That's what they say, right? You love what you do and never work a day in your life. That's right. That's right. Well, John, one final thought sure. that I'd like to ask you here. If there was if there was one thing that you could tell a struggling addict, what would it be? Face the truth of your pain and why you're doing what you're doing. You really need to face your truth. I think that's it right there. Face your truth. Yeah. Face your truth. Well, John, it's been great having you on. Um, positive thoughts, man. I, I, that's my takeaway right there because that encompasses yeah. so much positive thoughts. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, you, you're going to be a friend of the show from here on out. So we, we've already signed you up. Now you're a friend of the show. But thank you again. Yeah.